Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. So I just want to give you permission. You can come to both services if you don't get enough singing. <laughs> Those of us who come to both services, it's hot in here. <laughs> uh, but isn't it great that it's November and it's hot in here? <laughs> we thank all the Brazilians for bringing the warm weather. <laughs> um, this morning, as we have been singing and as we come to this great text of Scripture, which, as I've been studying it back and forth, is so worn out it's come out of my Bible. Um, so that's how good it is and how much we go to it. Here's this great text of Scripture, which is meant to convey to all people the extravagant and ecstatic love of God. And I just want to say this. As much as we have sung, read, and prayed about the love of God, we have had a thimbleful of an ocean of God's love that is meant to be expressed in this text of Scripture. We have not over-exaggerated the grace of God this morning. Amen. Far from it. We have just begun to initiate, in a sense, as we're looking at this text, what Jesus is seeking to express in this passage of Scripture. Contextually, in Luke 15, we have two groups of people. We have uh, the tax collectors and sinners who are aware that they are in need of help. They are outside, outcast, written off, people who have been written off by the religious around them. And these outcasts have smelt the aroma of something. They have heard uh, the reputation of Jesus. They have, they have heard sung and said, there is someone who receives sinners. And they begin to stream to Jesus. And, and uh, that ought to be great news for all of us, week after week, day after day, knowing that we're broken sinners, streaming to one who gives us grace. And there's another group of uh, people, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious, the self-righteous, who look at these sinners coming to Jesus and they shake their heads. Shake their heads at Jesus. Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he understand that if we go with this, if we put up with this, if we accept these people coming to him, we are certainly going to see sin go rampant and idolatry go, and they're in their self-righteousness. And here is our beautiful Savior who is going to Jerusalem to die, standing in the middle of these two groups of people and appealing to them. You know, the center figure here is not the prodigal son. It's not the younger son that we're going to look at today. The central figure in this parable is not the older brother standing there with his arms crossed going, what's the matter? Why are you being so sinful and silly and stupid? It's not those two. It's the father that runs. This is the story of a father who embraces and accepts. And here is Jesus in the middle appealing on behalf of the father to both groups of people, saying to those who feel like they've ruined their family reputation, they've They've got an indelible mark upon their lives that sin has so deeply stained them that they can't come to God. Jesus is saying, come now, just come. 
He's appealing. And he's appealing to the elder brother, that self-righteous one going, you are trying to hold it together in your righteousness. But you don't have to. And you can't. Drop it. Flee to God. He's peeling both ways. And here's what I want to say. Some of you this morning feel like the younger brother. You may not even know why you're here today. But you feel like there's an indelible stain that maybe you've shamed your family. Maybe you've, you've brought guilt upon yourself. Maybe there's a mark on you that just echoes in the middle of the night. Don't listen to you. Listen to Jesus. Don't listen to you. Listen to Christ. And maybe there are some of you who have to say, you know, my problem is I'm just so impatient with sinners, the people in my life. I'm a grumbler. That's what they were doing, grumbling and complaining. Jesus, if you're this gracious, they'll just keep on sinning. They'll keep bringing on dishonor and, and stain to your name. And Jesus says, stop it. That comes back to bite you, right? And, he, and here's the reality for all of us. Most of us here today are spiritual schizophrenics. We're both the younger brother and the older brother. Do you understand what that's like? You mess up and you feel awful. So Sunday morning, you drag yourself in and say, I've been the worst mom, the worst dad, the worst single teenager. And, and you come in and you're just full of shame and you pray for God to meet you there. And you're trying to work it out and then in your head you think, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to recommit. I'm going to double down. And you switch to the older brother who's relying on your self-righteousness. I'm going to be a better person. My dear friends, it's not you being a better person. It's Jesus being the best person on your behalf, coming to rescue you and give you grace. The parable of the prodigal son is for rebellious sons and self-righteous sinners and that a mix that goes into all of us that we need to hear all the time. You don't need to fix yourselves. We have a Savior. We have a gracious God who runs to you in order to make you free and set you uh, on the path of righteousness by faith. Listen to Tim Keller. Keller is famous on his uh, writing on this, his preaching on the prodigal God, and he shows the distinction here. So listen to what Keller writes. Jesus does not divide the world into moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We're just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and his feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a different spirituality. The gospel's not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along the spectrum between two poles. It's something altogether different. Isn't that good news? Right? So this is not about you getting right and you fixing it and you doing this. It's not about you despairing. It's about someone who can save you no matter how righteous you think you are or how wrong you've been, and all the mix in between. There's a name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so this morning, we're going to look at the younger brother, so stained with the sin, so uh, shameful to his family, that Jesus speaks in, in absolutely the strongest terms possible to create an offense amongst his ears. 
when he describes this younger son, that they would pull back and recoil and think this one ought to die. And in the Jewish shame-based, honor-based culture, he should die. And, and Jesus does that so clearly so that we might see that as, as extreme as the son's sin is, the father's saving grace is far more extreme. As fast as the son runs to sin, the father runs to save. And this is what you and I need to get in our heads. There is a narrative in the back of our minds which we have read into our lives which shapes how we view God. My dear friends, God is not like us. He is far better. God is not religious like us. God is a saving, gracious, forgiving, restoring father and he's calling all of us home today and the message today is just run home just run home to the father today just drop it drop all your baggage and run to Jesus today run home this is important for us because you know all of us go through periods we, we were just sending a uh, John sent out a Keller article uh, a couple days ago to the elders which was or I think it was yesterday maybe even that was talking about the deconstruction reconstruction uh, reality that's going on in a lot of young people's lives who are deconstructing their faith and reconstructing it. The thing I like about this passage of Scripture is it tells us young people have been doing it from, since the time of Christ, right? Running away from home, trying to make their own way, and then Jesus, God, helping them to reconstruct a real faith based in a real Savior. And so, you know, uh, our kids... Um, worked at a camp in Southern California that was started by Henrietta Mears called Forest Home. It's in the San Bernardino Mountains. And when our girls worked there, that place was famous because that's where Billy Graham had his reconstruction, de deconstruction, reconstruction moment. He had a moment when he was at Forest Home. They've got a, a marker there where it happened, but Billy Graham went there and he, and he began to wrestle, is the Bible true? Is the word of God really reliable? Is the gospel message that I've heard all my life actually uh, the real deal? And he began to wrestle through that. And it was there in that place after wrestling through all those things, he came to the conclusion that he believed in the gospel, believed in God, and that set him on the trajectory. But he had that moment. Uh, Francis Shaver had the same thing, not before he was married, after he was married. And Edith, was, Edith Schaefer was in great nervousness as he worked through, do these doctrines make sense? Are they real? Can I trust the Bible? Going through that and having God work the answers into his life. And there's various ways. I had that. I didn't go to a Christian college. I went to a secular university up in Canada. And I, I remember being in my first year of university, having left home, asking the question, do I believe this because it's the air I breathe? I was living in an anti-God culture going to hear professors and listening to that, and I began to wrestle through. I said, okay, did we have enough courage to look at it all? Amen. And I began to work through the questions and then really had a, one of the apostles' experiences from the gospel, to whom shall I turn? You alone have the words of eternal life and fled to Christ. And so that's what's happening here in this text of Scripture. Thankfully, this son is offensive, but God's grace is greater. And he overcomes, and this ought to encourage any one of us who's struggling or any one of us who knows someone who's struggling. God's grace is greater than all our sin. So here's what I want to do initially. I want you to look at the younger brother 
And this is what I want you to see. I want you to at least feel a little bit, because Jesus intends this, I want you to feel the reckless nature of the, son, the younger brother's sin. Because Jesus is speaking in such a way that his hearers will recoil. His hearers will go, immediately they'll go, this son is offensive. And he's not just a danger. And again, you've got to remember the honor-shame-based culture in which Jesus is speaking, Eastern culture. To dishonor your father is to dishonor your family. To dishonor your family is to dishonor your community. And to dishonor the community, your family and your father are obligated to bring the honor back. And so Jesus describes what happens with this young man. And so let me just walk through and point out, and, and, and the word I have here I want you to think about is catastrophe. Because this is a demolition of this young man's integrity and his identity in his community as a Jewish young man. It is an absolute catastrophe. Marianne and I were watching uh, the, a video series, a net, Netflix series called Aftershock. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's a three video series of the earthquake in 2015 in Nepal. And uh, one of the things in the video, they're all, it's all actual live footage of the earthquake uh, up at base camp, up at, at um, Camp 1 on Mount Everest, in the Langtang Valley, in Kathmandu. Everybody doesn't know what's going on. It devastated. Nine million people, or sorry, 9,000 people killed. Um, three or four million people left homeless. It was just a devastating earthquake. Well, at one point in time, there's some guys up on the mountain on Everest. They've hiked up to, I forget the name of the village, but they went up to the village. They left Langtang uh, Village, which was having a big religious celebration, a funeral the day before. All the people had come in together. They went up to the next village, and then the earthquake, an avalanche happened, and they said, we better get down. And so they said, let's go to Langtang Village. That's the way out of the valley. And so they come down to Langtang Village, and they go over this horizon that they could see the village. They go over the horizon, and Langtang Village is absolutely gone. Like, gone. The whole town, except, if you ever see it, there's one picture, you can probably Google this online, there's one picture of one house that's left standing under a rock. It's a powerful image of taking shelter under the rock. But that's what happens here. As this story goes through, it's a catastrophe for one after another. This young man's honor, credibility, acceptability, redeemability in the eyes of the people is devastated. It's a catastrophe. So here's the first thing that you need to see in this text. His audacious impertinence. His audacious impertinence. All I mean by that is that this young man acts immediately in such a way that he brings dishonor on his father, and in bringing dishonor on his father, he brings grave dishonor onto his community. So if you look at this text of Scripture... If you take your Bible like that and look at the, the pullout, no, sorry. Um, he says uh, in verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. And so we need to understand what's going on here. This young man should not inherit his portion of the property, his father's inheritance, until his father has died. Also, culturally, what would have had to happen here in order for this young man 
to be able to go off and do what he's going to do is he would have had to take the portion of land, the inheritance that was given to him, and he would have had to sell it in order to get cash. So his request to his, other, to his brother would be so offensive because in the, in the culture, you're responsible not only to honor your parents, but also to take care of your parents until they died. This young man said, I'd rather you, you're not dying quick enough. I'm out of here. And I do believe that in part, he just can't stand being in the house with his self-righteous brother, although that's not uh, emphasized here. And, and, you know, I think both brothers are kind of looking at the dad saying, why don't you straighten the other one out? And he just, he just can't be there anymore. He's got to get out of there. But he has the audaciousness to go and dishonor his father. N.T. Wright says this, when the father divided the property between the two sons and the younger son turned his share into cash, into cash, this must have meant that the land the father owned was split into two with the younger selling off his share of the land to someone else. That shame would bring, the shame that this would bring on the family would be added to the shame that the, fa- the son had already brought on the father by asking for his share before the father's death. It was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father bears these two blows without recrimination. Got that? So not only did he dishonor the father and say, I wish you were dead and take his inheritance, but that father would stay and live in the community with someone else living on his land as a marker publicly that this son has dishonored his father. And the grumbling in the community would be, you should do something about that. You should do something about that. That's certainly the older brother. Later on, (laughs) the older brother has some statements to make his father, this son of yours who took your property that, uh, that disdain is palpable, and he just, he's angry, not only with his brother, but his father for not addressing it. Garland said, David Garland says, such a request harms the family's reputation and damages its wealth, perhaps irretrievably. It could be the rest of their lives, someone is standing there as a reminder. Some of you today feel that. I, I believe some of you here today have so sinned that you feel that you have left a mark on your family, a stain on your family that cannot be removed. Let me tell you this. That would be true if it was left to us, but God is greater than all our sin. That God is greater than all our sin. Secondly, uh, we need to notice his irrational exuberance. He couldn't wait to go sin. It says in verse 13, not many days later, the the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless reckless living. It's almost immediate. You know, James says that sin happens when lust is in our heart. We, we, We lust in our heart and lust gives birth to sin and then sin gives birth to what? Death. This son has been plotting it. He's been waiting for this moment to get out of Dodge. He can't wait to go. And so he's got the money. He's ready to go. He's running off, and he's just going. Not long later, he just was running towards sin. In the Jewish mind, this son is a perfect picture of the foolish son in the book of Proverbs. Because in the book of Proverbs, the foolish son runs off into sin and death. Listen to Proverbs 7, where there, Um, Solomon writes, and he's speaking, describing, warning his son against sin and and lusting after the world. 
And he says in Proverbs 7, 21, all at once he follows her. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till, uh, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it'll cost him his life. This is the foolish son that the Bible warns against. This is that son that brings dishonor on his father and his family and has done great damage. And not only does he do that, it's also in this, his unrestrained, this is the other thing we need to see, his unrestrained self-indulgence. He doesn't decide to sin a little bit. He decides to go all out, absolutely all out in his sin. He throws himself headlong into wickedness. He just runs and goes to it tries everything. He's not looking at a budget. He's not doing any calculations of when my steam will run out. He is free, free, free. Like many college students when they get away from home, they're just free to go. Free of anybody watching them. Just wanting to go and spend it and squander it all. Here is what he is doing and he's doing it in ways that are deeply offensive. Listen to what it says. He goes there and he squanders his property, property, his father's property in reckless. That's where we get the prodigal son. That word is reckless, prodigal. It means to, to, to be absolutely not worried about the costs, what it's costing you or the consequences. Just going. Here's the good news. As, as reckless as we are with our pursuit of lust, God is far more reckless in his pursuit of us with his grace and mercy. His grace is greater than all our sins. So later on in this chapter, the description that the older brother, the older brother walks back in when the son comes back and his father greets him. The older brother says to the father, he goes, this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes. It's a little picture. And I would say to you, it is a, a symbolic picture, a metaphor of a far range of sin that he engaged in. He did it all, everything he could have engaged. He threw off all inhibition. Thank God God was greater than that. And then finally in this text of Scripture, we also need to see that it was his sudden and catastrophic fall from gaze. As Jesus tells the story, we come to the point where it says, look, look down in the parable that it says, verse 14, and when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent himself into the field, fields to feed what? pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything now again you have to think like a with a jewish mind here if you were to read the jewish old testament famine in the old testament was a sign of god's judgment for your disobedience that's what famine was so in the old testament when the law was given um, to the people of Israel, they were told that if they obeyed the law, God would bless them. If they disobeyed the law, God would curse them. So in Deuteronomy 28, 12, it says, if you're faithful to God's promises, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless the work of your hands. So obedience would lead to rain and, and rain would symbolize flourishing. 
But disobedience would lead to what? Drought. And so it says in Deuteronomy 28, 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you're destroyed. It was interesting when we watched the video of Aftershock in Nepal. They had a video on one of the men, one of the Nepalese men who was there and, and was back at Langtang Village where he had family and he was talking about God and he's going, he, they immediately thought that God had turned his hand against them because of this devastation. And when the Jewish people heard Jesus say, and famine came, they would go back to the law and go, okay, at least God is giving him what he deserves. He's getting, so he's being cursed by God, and it says so cursed by God that he goes out and he feeds pigs, and in the Jewish culture, like when the Romans came in, uh, or when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and took over the Jews, he made them eat swine in order to ruin their Judaism, their loyalty uh, to Ju- uh, Judaism. It was a stain and a mark that would make them unclean. That's what he did. So what's being happened here in the text, Jesus is saying this so that they would think, oh, this guy's not a Jew anymore. He is so far gone. He's eating or feeding with pigs and doing that. That that kind of stain is a symbolic gesture that he is no longer redeemable. And yet, the son hears an echo. I want to say a couple things here really quickly. Number one, in the Bible, famines are used by God to move his people to where he wants them to be. Moves them to Egypt, right? He he moves uh, Ruth around so she ends up being the, the grandmother of the Messiah she marries Boaz famine is part of God's providence to get a hold of our attention and direct them back to himself in the Bible and the other thing it says in this passage of scripture is that this young man came to his what he came to his senses and in the Bible, there's only, a, you know, one other place where that's used. We were talking about this the other night, 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is one of my favorite texts of Scripture, where the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome. I memorized this as a young pastor. The Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they might come to their, coming to their senses, they might escape the snare of the devil who has held them captive to do their will. Coming to your senses is a divine act of mercy. Amen. And what you and I need to see in this text of Scripture is that the f- true Father in heaven was already arranging things to send the Son home so that the Father would greet them along the way. And so that's where it shifts. It shifts to the son who is going to do what you and I do. We sin and then we go to law, right? Okay, God, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to come in and I'll be a servant and work for you and then I'll be acceptable to you. He is risking his life coming back in Eastern culture. The, the, the cultural attitude is right from the moment he dishonored his father, the family should clear the honor of the community. Uh, missionaries in the Philippines um, have had to deal with this at one point in time, how um, culture, the, the shame-based, honor-based culture can make people behave in ways they shouldn't. And so when, when uh, several years ago, they decided they were going to eradicate uh, drugs from the Philippines, and so they basically put a bounty out on people's heads that you're dishonoring, 
your people and your nation, and you, you, you should die. And what missionaries had to begin to do is they actually found Christians, people who had converted to Christians, being willing to kill their, their family or being willing to kill people who were selling drugs because the shame and the dishonor on the culture was such great, they felt that it was incumbent on, on them to justly deal with it. That's still an issue in Eastern cultures. If you're, a, if you're an Islamic woman, I don't know how many of you watched the Iranian woman uh, who was, did the climbing without her scarf on, yeah, her hijab, and she just went back, and there was nervousness as you came to the airport. Man, if, you, if you're an Islamic woman and you convert to Christianity, your family has to protect the honor of your community by eradicating you. It's incumbent on you. So that's what this young man is coming back to. And you and I need to hear that when we watch the Father. And you and I need to hear that because you and I come sometimes thinking God is just waiting to slap me silly and put a guilt on me and I'm going to negotiate with God. I won't do it again. I promise I won't do it again. I promise I'll make it right. I'll, I'll do this and all. Just stop for a second because it's not your, God is not listening to your rehearsed statement on the way back how you're going to fix this all up. He is already looking <laughs> He is already leading, and he is already running to see you. So in this text of Scripture, you and I need to see the outrageous, not only the outrageous sin of the Son, but the outrageous love of the Father. Notice these things that we see here. Number one, just as the Son had irrational exuberance, the Father has irrational exuberance. You, you're not to and say, oh, this is a logical reaction. This is about as anti-cultural act a father could do as you can imagine. What does the Father do? when the sun comes right <laughs> he runs a, a dignified man does not run in eastern culture and certainly not to a rebellious son and he doesn't care what anybody thinks he runs and he grabs his son and his son is starting to do going to do it and he kisses his son and uh, one of Marianne's favorite pictures is Rembrandt's um, the return of the prodigal and in Gabe's song that he led earlier there's a line there where you can actually picture the father looking down the son is like down at his father looking up like this and the father and the and the tears are run, running down and the father is embracing his son friend do you, is that your God is that the narrative in your head about your father that you would just get up if you're running struggling in sin and drop everything and run to him and believe that he would get to you before you got to him in fact he got to you to get you to go to him so he could get to you to kiss you that's logical but it's totally illogical because that's his love for you that's the nature of his grace the father's irrational exuberance listen to garland he said nothing the boy has done makes him an unson the father does not require that his son demonstrate that he's truly repented and proven that his motives are pure before he showers his love upon him. The, loves, the father's love is not conditioned by confession. The father loves the son and comes to him. Friends, I don't care what you've done. The father loves you. And today he's coming for you. And in this sermon, he's kissing you. And you fall at his knees. You don't have to say anything except for thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Secondly, we see the father's unrestrained generosity. You see, the, you see the son's, you know, unrestrained foolishness with all his father's possessions. The father, I, I initially, when I was talking to Gabe, I had I'd entitled this sermon, Like Father, Like Son. Because in this passage of scripture, the son is absolutely reckless. 
spending like crazy. But he gets that from his dad. His father doesn't care what anybody thinks. He runs out to his son, and what does he do? He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. He puts shoes on his feet. He embraces them. What is that? All of those things are, in Jesus' Eastern culture, they all mean something. The putting on of the robe is the restoring of the authority of the family to the son. Remember Joseph and his many-colored robe in the Old Testament? His brothers hated that because the father had given him authority over the family. He's returning authority. The ring that he puts on his fingers is a symbol, not only that he has the full right of sonship, but he is actually restored as an heir. Ooh, that'll tick off the older brother. But here's the good news of the gospel, my dear friends. God is coming with absolute generosity in his son, and he's restoring to you the full rights of sonship. He's letting you be called a child, and he's making you an heir with Christ. You haven't lost anything. You've gained far more. Why? Because our God is reckless in his love. Oh, please, you've got to make that the narrative of your life. I don't care what I used to believe about the Father. I'm not concerned about what you used to think about the Father. Listen to what Jesus is telling us about his Father. That's what matters. And that may change all of your Christian theology that you've had. Hear that. And then what does he do? Not only does he bring him all the rights of sonship, but he slaughters what? The fattened calf. Do you know what it is? That calf was, was saved for the most precious occasion. And whenever it was slaughtered, all of the community, it was big enough, it was going to be a community-wide party. And when he does this, he uh, slaughters the fatted calf It means the father is making a statement to the community. This is my son. I don't care what you think. You come. You be here when I celebrate him because I'm going to stand up in front of everybody and slaughter that calf and invite everybody in because if you think I'm going to punish the son, I'm going to criticize the son, I'm going to put him in a position as a servant so he can cower in shame, understand this, there's no shame anymore in this family. He is my son. You got an argument with that? You have an argument with me. That's what he's doing. That's the gospel, friends. That's what he says over you right now. Doesn't matter what anybody says to you, it only matters what he says. And he says, You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because the slaughtered calf isn't the metaphor. It's a metaphor, it's not the reality. He didn't slaughter a calf and have a feast. He gave who? He gave the his own son to settle it. Anybody steps up and says, Dibley's a wretched sinner? Well, I have no defense. I have no argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. God says, are you telling me that the righteous son of Christ who died on the cross for me is not enough? That's not enough? Well, my dear friend, it is enough. The righteous one for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous is righteous in my sight. I will hear no more charges When I was younger, I didn't use this illustration in the first sermon, but I never do the same two sermons anyway. (laughs) When I was younger as a pastor, um, 
I had a group of people who wanted to throw me out of the church for the wrong reasons, or probably right reasons, but they had the wrong reasons. And I had someone write a 30-page document on why I should no longer be the pastor of the church I was pastoring and sent it to the denominational leadership. I had never met that person. I never spoke to them, but they gathered rumors and innuendos, and eventually I got the document and said, and then I got invest- we got investigated, had the denominational leadership come in and say, what are you doing? Are your power control? All that kind of stuff. I just went through the process. I had a good mentor who told me to shut my mouth, go through the process, trust the Lord and pray. So I did. But there was a day coming where the executive minister wrote a letter back to the, my accusers and said to them, we'll say this with absolute clarity. We will bring, we will hear no more charge against Kevin Dibley ever again. This is settled. In fact, what they did, just as a quick side, they put two people who supported my ministry and two people who opposed my ministry together to come up with a solution on behalf of the denomination. And the two people who opposed my ministry went through the process and became my friends and then stood up and supported me. Because it was all rumors and in, innuendos. And, and it, as a young guy and my wife was battling cancer and it was just like, what am I doing, Lord? But I'll tell you how freeing it was to hear them say, enough, we're not going to listen to this anymore. But I tell you, that's nothing. That little moment is nothing like when God says to the accuser above and to anyone else, that's enough. I will hear no more accusations against my son. I am satisfied. His, he is clean and forgiven and righteous. That's what Jesus has done. There is no more. Who will bring any charge against God's elect, it's Christ Jesus who died and was raised from the dead. Aren't you glad for that? Is that a mercy of God, my dear friends? Feel it today. The extravagance of your sin is paling compared to the extravagance of God's son, God's love. He has poured out love and grace upon you for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you bow with me? And, and, and let's already start. If you are a rebellious child who knows the stain of your sin, run home right now. If you're the self-righteous brother, we'll talk about it more next week, but you run home right now as well. Father, we pray as we go to baptism, as we go to watch Alathia receive by faith the gift of sonship, we thank you and praise you. And we just come now, dear God, and say, what you've done for us. None of us can justify ourselves. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory, but thank you, Father, for your extravagant love in Jesus Christ. It's in your name, it's in your work, it's in your statement, your love that we put our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.